you're making your pitch. You've got your fancy slides and your PowerPoint deck or you're on the phone, whatever it is. And you think that person's listening, right? You think that a client or that boss or whoever it is you're trying to pitch is listening to your pitch. What they're really doing is they're poking holes in everything that you're saying. And so essentially, you need to give them a better job, a different job. If you give them one option, their job is poking holes in, in that option. And so what great salespeople, what great consultants often do is they give people multiple options. They give them a menu. Welcome back to the Art of Charm podcast, a show where we bring you actionable tips and strategies to supercharge your social skills and get rid of that boring small talk, surrounding yourself with an army of awesome people and growing your social capital. To unlock your hidden charisma and crush it in business, love, and life. Now, if you're new to the show, every single month we do toolbox episodes where we go deep into social skills development and confidence building techniques and tactics. Now imagine having a mix of experienced mentors teaching you their expertise, packing decades of research, testing, and tough lessons into a concise curriculum each and every week. Well, that's what we do here at The Art of Charm. I'm AJ. And I'm Johnny. Now, not only have we been doing this podcast with great tips, scientifically proven strategies, as well as amazing guests, we've been delivering live and online advanced emotional intelligence training programs for over a decade. And if what you've learned on this show has helped you in your life, Imagine what one of our tailored programs could do for you. To learn more about these advanced social skills programs, go to theartofcharm.com for more details and to sign up for our newsletter. Johnny, we know if you listen to the show, you are driven. In fact, we're driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to recent Indeed survey. We have hired a lot of team members over the last 17 years. Going through endless resumes, well, that's a time sink. But you know what else is a time sink? Interviewing endless people, because they're all going to give you the best face forward. That's why we love Indeed, leveraging over 140 million qualifications and preferences every single day. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences. So the more you use Indeed, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of this show get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at indeed.com slash charm. Just go to indeed.com slash charm right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Indeed.com slash charm. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Over the last 17 years, we have launched our fair share of online courses, coaching programs, and finding the right platform has always been a challenge. They say if you do what you love, you never work a day in your life. But if you're an entrepreneur, you know the hard work that comes with it. That's why you need Kajabi. Kajabi makes it easy to run your entire online business from one platform so you can focus on what you love, creating. Kajabi is the ultimate all-in-one platform that helps creators and entrepreneurs build successful online businesses by unlocking predictable recurring revenue. No matter your niche, 
Kajabi makes it easy to turn your skills, passions, and experiences into enriching online courses, exclusive membership sites, subscription podcasts, thriving communities, personalized coaching, and more. The best part? Kajabi doesn't cut into your revenue because everything is owned and controlled by you. So keep 100% of what you earn. And with Kajabi, you also get robust analytics, easy payment options, email marketing tools, and customizable website templates all built in. You don't even need a huge audience to make sustainable income. There are thousands of creators on Kajabi making six and seven figures with less than 50,000 followers. Right now, Kajabi is offering a free 30-day trial to start your business if you go to kajabi.com slash charm. That's K-A-J-A-B-I dot com slash charm. Go to kajabi.com slash charm and join the creators and entrepreneurs who have made over $7 billion. Now, thank you everyone for tuning in. Let's kick off the show. Today, we're talking with Jonah Berger. He's an expert on social influence and how ideas, behaviors, and products take off. Together with his colleagues, he's conducted hundreds of experiments on what drives people's choices and behaviors. Now, Jonah's a professor at Wharton School at University of Pennsylvania, and he's the author of amazing books such as Contagious, Invisible Influence, and today we're talking about his new book called Catalyst, How to Change Anyone's Mind. And that is exactly what we need to learn about to allow us to advance in our career, to raise our influence and persuasion. Hello, Jonah. Thank you for joining us today. Thanks so much for having me. We'll jump right into the book, and I feel like obviously right now in this COVID time, we are all facing a lot of counterintuitive opinions and arguments and beliefs and really struggling to change our minds and others' minds around us. So I think the book is really quite insightful in terms of understanding how we as humans respond to people trying to change our minds and be persuaded. Definitely an interesting time we're in. (laughs) Why are we as humans so resistant to changing our opinion? I think at the core, you know, the way we're going about it is is wrong. When we try to persuade people, uh, we try to change minds, we try to change action, we often take a particular type of approach, and that is some version of pushing, right? We think if we just add more reasons, if we provide more facts, more figures, more, more information, people will come around. And it's clear why we have that intuition, right? If there's like a, a chair sitting in the middle of a room and we want to move that chair, what's a good way to move it? Well, pushing. Pushing is usually a very good way to move physical objects. We push a chair, it goes. When we apply that idea to people, though, it gets a little bit more complicated because when we push people, people don't just go along. They often dig in their heels, they push back, and they often even do the opposite of what we want. And so rather than pushing, we've we've got to figure out a different way to go. And I think a lot of us, when we rationalize our change, we don't think about the emotional component. We do feel like it was the facts and the preponderance of evidence that changed our minds when we look back in hindsight, but that's really not what's going on. Yeah, I mean, I think it's also interesting, you know, there's a difference between trying to change our own behavior uh, and trying to change others' behavior. Uh, You know, if we're a salespeople person, we might be trying to change the client's mind. If we're an employee, we're trying to change a boss's mind. If we're a a leader, we might be trying to change organizational culture. We often focus a lot on the change that we want to have happen, uh, but we focus a lot less on the person or people that we're trying to change. And and that's part of the problem. It, It turns out there's a better way to change minds, but it's not about pushing. We have to think about change a little differently. For myself, that was one of the most compelling ideas in the book because it certainly changed 
how I viewed a lot of our marketing. So when we're doing stuff on Instagram, if we're, we're are doing some advertising on Twitter, one of the things that your book had brought to my attention that I implemented immediately and saw an instant change was taking away hurdles, which making it easier for people to follow along rather than giving them either a, a hurdle to jump through or having them think about something where the emotional response is always going to be triggered before they're logically understanding where they're going. And by the time you're telling them to perform an action, there's where the resistance becomes. Where emotionally, they were following right along until they were logically triggered to see that hurdle. Hurdles is, is a great way to talk about it. You know, we, we, we often focus on pushing. We often focus on adding more. But the better way turns out actually to come from, from chemistry. And so, you know, some of your listeners may have a, a background and at least a little bit of chemistry. But you probably remember that change in chemistry is even harder than it is uh, in the social world. Difficult to get, uh, you know, carbon to turn into diamonds or plant matter to turn into oil. And so chemists often use temperature and pressure to speed the process. You know, if you have a kernel of popcorn at your house and you want to eat it, you want to turn it into popcorn, you stick it in the microwave. You add temperature, uh, you know, it heats up the molecules inside, it moisture and pressure intensifies and it becomes popcorn. But it turns out there's a special set of substances that chemists often use that make change happen faster and easier. It cleans everything from uh, you know the grime off your contact lenses to the uh, you know the oil off your car's uh, engine and carburetor. But what's most interesting about these substances is how they create change. They don't increase the temperature. They don't increase the pressure. They actually lower the barrier uh, required for change to occur. They remove the obstacle. And as you guys have probably guessed, these substances are called catalysts. And that's exactly why why I wrote this book. Right? There's a better way to change, not by pushing harder, but by finding out what those obstacles are and and removing them. I think a, you know, a great way to think about it is you know, imagine your car is parked on a hill, let's say, and you want to get it to go. And so you step on the gas, you step on the gas, it's not going. What do you do? You often say, well, God, I need more gas. If I just step on the gas harder, it'll go. Sometimes we don't need to step on the gas. Uh, sometimes we just need to remove the parking brake. And so the book is all about figuring out, well, what are those obstacles, those barriers, those parking brakes that are preventing our desired action from occurring? And how rather than pushing, can we remove the obstacles and, and make change more likely? And the book breaks down five common roadblocks to change and gives very compelling examples that I think we can all resonate with, whether you're parents, whether you are in sales, or whether you're in an argument and trying to persuade people. So I'd love to walk through these five, and then we could talk about some actual strategies that our audience can use to help alleviate these roadblocks. Yeah, sure. And so um, maybe we can pick one and dive into it a little bit. I find sometimes if you skip across all five, uh, people don't remember any of them. So so let's pick one and we can. I'm happy to talk about it in, in a little bit of depth. Well, I think the first one is the one that we all respond the most to because we know when someone's pushing us in a certain direction, immediately that parking brake <laughs> comes up and we don't want to move forward. And it's that reactance that we're talking about. You know, I think a good way to talk about reactants is, can I tell a quick story? Is that all right? Yeah, please. Yeah. So I'll tell the story of Tide Pods because I think that's uh, interesting in today's day and age. And so uh, some of you may be familiar with, with Tide Pods. They're essentially a, a faster and better way to do laundry rather than having to measure out exactly how much laundry detergent. They come in these little packets. And so you just chuck it in the, um, the, the laundry makes it easier. So Tide released these uh, pods. They thought it could take a big chunk of the billion-dollar laundry industry, put $150 million in marketing behind it. They release them. They do pretty well, uh, but then there's a problem. Uh, And that problem, very simply, is that people are eating them. And so you might be sitting there going, what do you mean people are eating them? Aren't they filled with chemicals? You're exactly right. They are filled with chemicals. 
But people have decided there's a, a funny video on College Humor. There's a satirical article on The Onion. Uh, people have challenged each other to start eating them. It's the Tide Pod Challenge you may remember from, from a few years ago. And so Tide is sitting there going, well, what should we do? I mean, people shouldn't be eating them in the first place, but what do we do? Well, we got to tell them not mm-hmm. to do it. They release all these press releases saying, don't eat Tide Pods. They hire Rob Gronkowski to make these videos and say, don't eat Tide Pods. They think that will be the end of it. Uh, and the exact opposite happens. They put all this work telling people not to eat Tide Pods, and suddenly more people start eating Tide Pods. Interest in Tide Pods goes up. Visits to poison control go up as well. Essentially, a warning becomes a recommendation. Telling people not to do something makes them more likely to do it. Now, you might be sitting there going, well, that's ridiculous. That never other, other happens beyond this Tide Pod example. But it's actually a much broader, specific example, much broader case, which is this notion of reactants. We like to feel like we're in charge. We're in control of our own actions, our behavior, and our decisions. But if someone else tries to influence us, suddenly it's not clear whether we're driving our behavior or they're driving our behavior. And so what we often do is we push back. We have essentially an anti-persuasion radar, like a missile defense system or a spidey sense that goes off when we sense someone's trying to persuade us. You know, if a telemarketer calls us on the phone or an ad comes on the television or our spouse even tries to get us to do something, we go, oh, wait, they're trying to persuade us. Hold on. Let me deploy these countermeasures to avoid being persuaded. I'll avoid the persuasion attempt. I'll ignore it. Or even worse, I'll counter-argue. Yeah, I'm sitting there listening to everything that person is saying, but rather than just listening, I'm thinking about all the reasons wrong with what they're suggesting, why it won't work, why it's too expensive, why it's too difficult. And so really to change minds, we have to figure out how to reduce that reactance. I think our mayor here in Los Angeles, Garcetti, would certainly need to hear this because they had just put out a press release yesterday stating that at this point, they want, if you're going outside, they want you to wear a mask. And of course, you can imagine what that pushback was like. And of course, my first reaction was, what are you talking about? I'm just going outside. Now, there's arguments to be made for the psychology of other people feeling safe and and lots of other things. But just to come right out with that, of course, there was immediate pushback. And we're seeing it uh, transpire right now because this just happened yesterday. And I think that's a great example of a case where, hey, if they didn't tell you to do it, you might have even been fine doing it to begin with, right? You might have decided yourself, oh, yeah, I'm going out. Maybe I should wear a mask. But the mere fact that they told you to do it makes you less. I mean, think about this happens often with spouses and friends. Someone says, what do you want to do this weekend? You say, oh, you know, before the pandemic, you might have said, oh, let's go to a movie. Oh, I don't want to do that, right? They might have been fine going to a movie if they suggested it. But the fact that you suggested it, uh, they go, oh, you know, it's too nice outside. Or, oh, you know, we did that a couple of weeks ago. And so because someone else suggested it, they're, they're less likely to do it. And so part of what the strategies that I talk about to reduce reactants are about is really figuring out, well, how do we not try to persuade people, but allow them to persuade themselves? How rather than kind of selling, can we get people to buy in and make them feel like participants in, in that change process? And when it comes to reactants, what strategies can we employ to get people to buy in instead of yeah. sell and push? Yeah, so I'll, I'll talk about a couple, and I'll, I'll, I'll at the end at least I'll, I'll come back to the pandemic because um, I recently put a piece out in HBR that talked a little about how to apply these ideas to kind of kind of public health campaigns. So one I would start with is this idea of providing a menu, uh, and this came from talking to a lot of uh, great salespeople and, and great consultants. And what they said very simply is, you know, you're in a pitch meeting. Um, and a little bit like I talked about already, you know, you're making your pitch, you've got your fancy slides and your PowerPoint deck or you're on the phone, whatever it is. And you think that person's listening. 
right? You think that uh, client or that boss or whoever it is you're trying to pitch is listening to your pitch. What they're really doing is they're poking holes in everything that you're saying. Yeah, sure, you say your product is better, but you know, how do I know it's going to cost less? And is it actually going to pan out? And is this service going to work? And how is this going to integrate with what we're already doing? Almost like a high school debate team kind of poking and prodding and figuring out all the problems with your message. And so essentially, you need to give them a better job, a different job. If you give them one option, their job is poking holes in, in that option. And so what great salespeople, what great consultants often do is they give people multiple options. They give them a menu, at least a couple of different choices, because what it does is it shifts the role of the listener. Now, rather than sitting there going, oh, what don't I like about this? They're sitting there going, oh, which of these do I like better? And because they're sitting there thinking about which of them they like better, they're much more likely to choose one at the end of that interaction right? Because they made the choice. And I call it providing a menu because you're not giving them ultimate, you know, unlimited choice. You're not saying you can do whatever you want. You're choosing the choice set, but you're letting them choose within that choice set. And that feeling of participation, that feeling that they had a role to play makes them much more likely to go along with, with what they end up doing at the end. It's kind of counterintuitive. You would think, wait, if I'm giving them choices, what if they choose the thing that I don't want them to choose? Yeah. But in actuality, there's always that struggle when we're only given one choice. Immediately, we start looking, well, what what are my other options here? I can't really have one option. Yeah. And notice, by the way, that you're choosing the choice set. So I agree that someone could say, well, um, you know, maybe they'll choose the option I don't want. But if you're smart about it, you give them a set of options that you're happy which are, whichever of those options they, they choose, right? P- parents often talk about doing this with their kids. So, you know, rather than saying, hey, you know, you say, uh, eat your vegetables. I don't want to eat your chicken. I don't want to. So you say, well, okay. Which one do you want to eat first, your chicken or your vegetables? Which do you want to put on first, you know, these pants or your shirt? And by giving them a choice, you're, you're giving them options. You're equally happy that they choose between, but because you're choosing the choice set, they're much more likely to go along. The other example in the, the book around smoking teenagers, I think we've all lived through the D.A.R.E. campaigns. And what was remarkable was the truth campaign and how it took a different approach to this exact problem. Yeah, so I'll talk a little about truth, uh, and I'll also talk about this campaign uh, most of your listeners are probably are not familiar with uh, from Thailand that I think yeah. also does an interesting job. And so what truth did, right, is, is think about sort of old cigarette advertising, basically all public health messaging. It said, don't do it. Don't smoke. And what kids said is, well, don't you tell me what to do, government. I'm going to do whatever I want, right? Just like in today's day and age where you have these armed militias saying, don't you tell me to wear my mask. I'm going to show up with my gun and not wear my mask, right? People are pushing back on what others are saying. So Truth was one of the first campaigns to do is say, hey, great. You want to react against someone? React against the cigarette companies. Because without you realizing it, they're the ones persuading you. What Truth did is it said, hey, I'm not going to tell you to do anything. I'm just going to show you what the cigarette companies are doing to persuade you, and yet you make the decision. And kids said, well, yeah, I love reactants. I love pushing back. Let me push back against the cigarette companies. Screw them. I'm not going to do what, what they want to do. But there's even a, a better version, as I mentioned, of this uh, recently happened in, in Thailand. So uh, it's this organization that's uh, called the Thai Health Promotion Foundation, and they want to get people to quit smoking. And the problem is if you tell people to quit smoking, what do they do? They say, no, thanks. You know, stop telling me what to do. Uh, I'm not interested. So trying to figure out a, a different way to get people to quit. So they do something really interesting. They, they have this ad campaign, uh, but they also a- actually did this to a number of people where they go up to smokers and they ask those smokers for a light. Of course, in most cases, you know, someone comes up to a smoker, asks them for a light, a cigarette, uh, light their cigarette, smokers would say, of course. But in this case, the person who asks uh, is an eight or nine-year-old child. It's a little kid, a little boy or a little girl walking up to a smoker saying, you know, uh, can I have a light? 
And smokers do what you can guess they would do. They say, no, no way. I'm not going to give you a light, right? Uh, smoking's bad for you. You get emphysema. You hurt your lungs. Don't you want to go run and play? By the way, it's clear no one knows more about the dangers of smoking than smokers, right? They can lecture the kids uh, all they want about all the dangers of smoking. And so the kid says, you know, okay, fine, no problem. Hands him a slip of paper and walks away. And on that slip of paper, what it says is you worry about me, but not yourself. Call this quit line uh, to find out how to quit. And so First of all, it was hugely successful, right? Uh, calls to quit line go up uh, 40%, uh, goes viral on the internet. Millions of people view this video. But more importantly, what it does is it, it highlights what I'll call a gap. It highlights a gap between someone's attitudes and their actions. If you're a smoker, right, you like smoking, that's what you're doing, and someone's just come up to you and asked you for a cigarette and you've told them no. And now you're kind of stuck because your attitudes line up, right? People want those things to line up. Uh, but when they don't, we have what's called cognitive dissonance, right? Our attitudes and our actions, they don't match. I've got to do something to fix it. If I say I care about the environment, but I never recycle, it doesn't make me feel so great. I've got to do something to bring those two uh, in line. And so in this case, what the smokers do is they quit smoking, right? Or at least they call the quit line and they explore quitting. Not because someone told them to, but because someone pointed out that their attitudes and their actions weren't lining up, and, and so they have to bring them uh, in line. And so just to bring this back to the coronavirus, you know, we want someone to wear a mask. Well, if we tell them to wear a mask, they're going to say no. But what if instead we say, well, hey, you know, uh, would you want your elderly grandparent to be outside without a mask on? Uh, you know, if you're a kid, would you want your younger brother and sister to be outside with a mask on? If you're a parent, you want your kids to be outside without a mask on. Right? If we would say no to those things, then asking, well, why are you not wearing one, is a great way to encourage people to do it, not by telling them to, but by allowing them to participate. And I think that's the biggest point of the book in general is that we can't force people to do things. It's not going to work, but so many of us try in our daily lives, whether it's with our kids or our coworkers or in selling. And I think many of us don't realize how our own decision-making process works. We backwards rationalize things. We don't realize that a lot of our actions don't necessarily line up with our beliefs. We're walking around telling other people what to do, but oftentimes we're not following our own advice. And by asking the right questions to create that thought-provoking moment, then people start to realize, well, maybe my rationalizations aren't correct on this matter, or maybe I've been acting out of character and not realizing it. Yeah, I love the way you, you put it. And you know, there's that old phrase, practice what you preach. And in some sense, what highlighting a gap does is it reminds people that their practices and their preaches aren't necessarily the same. It doesn't force them to do anything. It doesn't push them. It just says, hey, you're being inconsistent, but doesn't say it that way because people wouldn't want to hear that they're being inconsistent and says, you know, do whatever you want. And, and people go, huh, well, wow, maybe I am being inconsistent. Uh, and now maybe I should, I should do something to it. And that in, in general, you know, the, I talk about, I think, four or five different strategies in the book. Those are the main ideas behind the strategies of reducing reactants. It's not pushing, it's not selling, it's kind of allowing people to participate, asking questions rather than telling people what to do, encouraging them to feel like they're participants, which will make them more likely to go along. And asking those questions, you are participating in the rumination that's going on internally for them. So it's bringing out their thought process so that you both can manage it instead of just letting that thought process happen internally where we don't really have any clarity on what this person's feeling or thinking. Yeah. And I think, you know, uh, think about a doctor, for example, you know, you don't walk into the doctor's office and the doctor goes, let me put a cast on your foot. A doctor starts by saying, well, what's the problem? Right? Well, what's, what's hurting? How long has it been hurting for? What's the issue? Essentially, they do a diagnostic. Salespeople don't do that with clients. 
Salespeople start by saying, let me tell you why my product or service is so great. Don't you want to listen? I brought along my you know, 500-page PowerPoint deck. We should start with the person that we're trying to convince, whether that person is a spouse, a kid, uh, you know, a client, a boss, whoever it might be, starting with them, understanding, well, where are they in the first place? What are the barriers for them? Let's find that root, that underlying thing that's preventing them from doing what we want them to do. And then let's pick the right thing out of our toolkit to make it easier, right? It takes a little bit more effort initially, but it, it smooths the ride and makes it much more likely that change happens. And a lot of times our assumptions around the reasons people are doing things are wrong. They're off. So it's important to question our own assumptions and allow the other person to explain their thought process behind it. Yeah, I mean, this is this is so true. I was talking to a, a friend and colleague of mine who was uh, trying to get something adopted at his university, and you know, he'd spent months on this particular project, uh, and it goes all the way up to the dean, and eventually the dean says no, and the guy's so bummed because he put all this work in. And I sort of said, well, why did the dean say no? He was kind of like, well, I'm not exactly sure, right? But he was so focused on, oh, wait, the dean said no, how bummed I am, where I said, well, hey, if you figure out why he said no, you might actually be able to change it around, right? You might be able to have a better chance. And so starting with that, well, why is the person not changing? What are those barriers? Makes it easier. When we're talking about behavior change, another big component of this is people are just resistant to change. We want to keep doing what we've always been doing. It's our comfort zone. And the second point of endowment, I think we've all run up against that where we want to help change someone's habits. We want them to be more healthy. We want to help them socially. Even in our coaching practice, we run up against this exact thing where well, we've been doing it a certain way. It doesn't feel uncomfortable to me to keep doing it this way. So why should I change? Yeah. And so, you know, this is what psychologists would call the status quo bias. We tend to be attached to the stuff that we're doing already. New things also feel risky. And that's sort of, you know, the cost of uncertainty, uncertainty tax. And maybe we'll talk about that in a couple of minutes. But old things also feel so comfortable and easy. Right? It feels costless to stick with what I'm doing already. I know it. It's comfortable. Uh, you know, think about moving homes, for example. Right? Well, I, I know where I live right now. It may not be perfect, right? but at least I know it. I, I know all the good things and all the bad things. It's easier. Right? People dating, they often talk about this in dating. Well, yeah, I'm not, you know, I'm not so happy with the person I'm dating, but God, you know, um, uh, well, if I go out there and I break up with this person, I got to find someone new and it's going to be so difficult. And so you know, it's, it's often really easy to stick with what we're already doing, even if it's not perfect. Do you find that there as a mechanism in which people familiarize and personalize these strategies to themselves. Obviously, they know that there's other ways to be doing things. They see other people doing them in different ways, though they've been doing it for so long. And you mentioned that bias. But also, I find it that they personalize it to where they say, well, for me, I do it this way. And it's like, well, we know that. That's why we're here. That's why we're discussing different ways. And an attachment is one thing, but when you personalize it, it's become so fixed. Yeah. I think you guys talked a little about this already, but it's basically this idea of motivated reasoning, right? Like if we want something to be true and someone tells us some information that's consistent with it, we believe them. If we don't want something to be true, we go, well, do I have to believe that it's true? And I do all this work to sort of figure out how it's not likely to be true. And so same things with our own behavior, right? If we're doing something, we tend to think it's the right thing. Sure, you know, that other thing might work for another person, but it wouldn't work for me. And so we think about all the reasons why it wouldn't work rather than all the reasons why it would. So we're motivated to make it not work, even though it, it might actually be quite effective. Once you break the glass on that idea, 
and you are open to doing things in a new way. Life opens up and becomes so much more fun. But it's just so difficult to get people to see what life can be if you open yourself up to these ideas. Yeah. You know, I used to have a sticky note uh, above my desk a number of years ago that said, what's the worst that will happen? And I wrote this down because I was dealing with exactly what you're talking about in my own life, right? And now I, sometimes I give this advice to other people, but sometimes, you know, we're like, oh, well, you know, it'll just, it won't work. And I think really thinking about what is the worst, not, you know, not uh, what's the most likely, what's the worst that could happen. And often once you go down that road, you actually realize that the worst thing wouldn't be that bad. You know, oh yeah, I buy the wrong product. Okay. Well then in a couple of years, I'll buy a new one. You know, if it's a really big decision, okay, then maybe it's a house or a spouse or having a kid, those are harder to turn around. But, you know, a product or a service, it's not that even, even that, that difficult. And even, you know, worst case with a spouse or a house, worst case, you get divorced, you buy a new house, you change your job. Even with these big decisions, you know, the worst case is not actually that bad. And sometimes, you know, that old saying, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Sometimes we're so, the uncertainty is what we're worried about. Right, we're actually that's what we get caught up in, not not the worst thing. This happened to me recently. Actually, I was this is a number of months ago while, while people were still flying, but um, I was flying to speak at an event and the flight was late, and it keeps getting pushed back and it keeps getting pushed back and keeps getting pushed back, and I'm going, oh my god, I'm going to miss this meeting. Oh my god, I'm going to miss this meeting. Um, you know, and I'm so worried about it. Right, um, and eventually uh, the flight gets pushed back so far that I'm definitely going to miss the meeting. And you would think now the worst possible outcome has been realized. Right? The worst possible thing would be that I'd miss the meeting, and now I've found out that I've missed the meeting, and so I should be despondent. But I'm actually fine, right? because the worst thing is actually the uncertainty. Missing the meeting is bad. It's not good to miss the meeting. Right. But once you know that you missed the meeting, you figure out a way to solve it. What's often worse is the uncertainty, the not knowing. There's lots of research that says it's really the not knowing that's bad. And so part of what we need to do as change agents, as catalysts, is reduce that uncertainty for people. And I think right now, you know, we're feeling that exact point. So many people are telling us, oh, use this opportunity to create massive change, be the catalyst in your life, start that new business, do that new thing, pick up that new habit. But unfortunately, with uncertainty, our human nature actually wires us to hit the pause button, not to make the big change, not to take the leap. Yeah. There's this study I talk about um, uh, in the book that was out of Stanford University from a couple of years ago. They basically asked people, not decades, not a couple of years, but you know, they ask people to imagine you take an exam, uh, you know, you, uh, it's a, you know, feel run down, you pass the exam, do you want to go on this vacation? Yes, no, or, or do you want to wait? Most people say, I'll take the vacation, right? I pass the exam, I feel good, I'll take the vacation. They ask some other people, hey, imagine you took this exam, same basic scenario, except these people fail. So you took an exam, you found out you failed the exam, but you could go on vacation, do you want to go on vacation? Can't take the exam again until next semester. Most students say, "Well, I'm feeling bad. I'll I'll take uh, I'll take the the vacation, right? So if I pass, I'll take the vacation. I fail, I take the vacation. But a third group is told they don't know. There's uncertainty. You'll find out in a couple of days whether you pass or you fail. And what's what I love about this study is the decision tree is clear, right? And I'll draw a little decision tree here, right? If you pass, if you pass, you take the vacation. If you fail, you take the vacation. So even if you don't know, even if you're up here, you should take the vacation. Yet what do people do? They hit that pause button, right? They say, oh, no, I'll I'll wait. Um, And that's what we do all the time. Uncertainty makes us wait, which is really great for whatever we're doing currently, Uh, you know, sticking with our old job, sticking with our old way of exercising, our old way of doing things, but it's terrible for change, right? Because uncertainty causes us to do nothing. Yeah, and we hear historically that these are opportunities for that change. These are the moments where we can set aside systems that are broken. We can look at our life in a different light, but 
that pause button is is looming large in all of our lives. So how can we create that catalyst for others to change dealing with uncertainty and the uncertainty tax? For me, the the best way um, to ease uncertainty is to lower the barrier to trial. It's basically how can we figure out rather than us trying to persuade someone, let me tell you how great this product is, how great this service is, why you should do what I want. How can I stop persuading you and again, get you to persuade yourself? And so one way is to make it easier for you to experience what I want you uh, to do. So like I'll, I'll use an example um, in a, a product or service context and then we'll sort of generalize it. But think about Dropbox. So billion-dollar business, hugely successful. A uh, number of years ago, though, they come out initially, had a lot of problems. I had trouble getting customers. Why? Because there was an old way of doing things. People were used to storing their files on their computer. There was this new way, cloud storage, of which Dropbox was one of the leaders in the space. But people are sitting there going, I, I don't know what cloud storage is. Where's the cloud? What happens if the cloud goes down? Right? I'm so used to doing what I'm doing before. You say your way is better, but how do I know it's better? And so Dropbox talked about buying search ads. Uh, they talked about trying other types of advertising, but they didn't think it would work. What they landed on was giving away the product for free. And you might be sitting there going, what do you mean give it away for free? They gave away two gigabytes of storage for free. They gave away some of their service uh, for free. And you might say, well, how do you make money giving away something for free? Right? Every kid with a lemonade stand knows you, you got to get people to charge. They didn't give it all away for free. They gave two gigabytes of storage away for free. And if you hit that two gigabyte limit, well, then you have to pay for, for more storage. They, they use what's called freemium, right? And, and most of us are familiar with at least some version of freemium, uh, even if we're not familiar with the term. But you, know, you go to the New York Times, they give you some articles for free, but eventually you have to pay for a membership. You use uh, Skype, for example, you get certain features for free, but there's a set of premium features you might have to upgrade to if you want those features. You use Pandora, you have to have ads, you want to get rid of the ads, you got to pay for it. What this model does is it gives you something which is great for people, people like free, but is also great for the company because by giving people something, it lowers that barrier to trial. It says, hey, rather than me telling you Skype, Dropbox, Pandora is great, you check it out yourself. If you like it, come back and pay us some money. If you don't like it, stick with what you're doing before. Right? And what it does is it allows people to experience the value. And because they experience the value, they're much more likely than to be willing to pay to, to upgrade, right? which is exactly what happened with Dropbox and a lot of other businesses. It's not just freemium. It's lowering the barrier to trial and reducing uncertainty. Think, for example, about test drives of a car. There's no free version and premium version, but it relies on the same idea. It says, yes, I think this car is great. But let me have you sit in it and check it out and drive it for a day. And if you like it, right, then come pay us the money. And so I would say whether we're trying to change our own behavior or whether we're trying to change others' behavior, how can we give them essentially a micro version of that experience, a sample of what we're offering, a sample of what we want uh, someone to do and allow them to see for themselves? And if they like it, they'll be much more likely to, to do it. Yeah. And it becomes a lot easier then for them to rationalize that emotional response that they just had of, oh, this is really easy. I thought storing on my hard drive and lugging my computer around would be the easier way, but actually having it in the cloud, being able to access it on my phone, it's a lot easier. And now I'm emotionally, in turn, ready to go and start paying. Yeah. And I think you know what's interesting about the pandemic, you've talked about it a couple of times and alluded to it, is it's forced us to change our habits. Right, you know, whereas bosses before might have said you got to come into the office. Yeah, remote rem working from home sounds great, but you know, people aren't going to get their work done. Uh, it's forced bosses because people have to work from home. Now people are working from home. Uh, you know, if you like exercising, you used to go to the gym. Uh, you can't go to the gym anymore. 
You got to figure out whether running or doing something else. You know, there may have been, uh, think grocery store. You might have thought about grocery delivery, but never been willing to try it because you say you like going to the grocery store. So many things that you did before that have been forced to change, you've essentially been forced to try some new things. Um, and what's great about those new things is they're better than you thought they were. Now you're going to stick with them. Not everything, right? You're not going to do all If you tried running and you hate running, you'll go right back to the gym as soon as it opens. But if you learn something from that trial, you're much more likely to stick with it. And so anytime we're trying to get someone to do something, uh, whether it's a product, a service, or even an idea, how can we lower that barrier to trial? How can we make it easier for them to sample what we want them to do and actually see it's not as bad, as risky, or as um, emotionally negative as they might have thought? And uh, just to go along with that, for certainly for the, the, the online companies and the platforms, everything has been designed so well the time has been put in to figure out how to make these things as user-friendly as possible. Of course, once they're set up, it is very easy to know, I, I, it's, I get you hooked, you're going to be back. Yep. And it becomes very fun. But, but notice, by the way, that that only works if the product or service is good. If you have something that's terrible, what I love about freemium and the idea of lowering the bear trial is if your car is terrible, people sit and go, yeah, thanks for the trial, but you know, <laughs> thanks. And so really what, what, what is nice about freemium is it, it's good for both sides, right? It's, it's good for consumers. You get to experience something and it's good for brands. If you got something that's really good and you allow people to experience it, they'll realize how good or, or valuable it is. Now, I think in all of these examples, the person we're trying to persuade or the mind that we're trying to change, they need to feel agency. They, they need to feel as though they are making the choice. And in all these examples, it involves listening and listening to that person on a deeper level to really understand them. And how can we become better listeners? Many of us are in roles where we have to persuade people and all we're thinking about is that end goal. And it's often difficult for us to meet the end goal that we have in mind and listen to the level that it takes to give that person the agency, the choice, the menu, all these great things we talked about. Yeah, there's a lot of research on listening. I've talked to some great listeners, but also reviewed a lot of the literature. And And listening actually has three pieces. Uh, and I think we understand that intuitively, but we don't always call them out, right? And so the first is attending. If we don't attend to what someone is saying, there's no way we're going to hear what they're saying, right? And so it's really about paying attention. Uh, the second is understanding, right? We may have paid attention, but I may have misunderstood what you said. Uh, and so even though I paid attention, doesn't guarantee I understand. But even if we understand really listening, we have to show that person that we listened. It's not enough to actually have understood what they said. We have to indicate to them that we've understood for it to have an impact on them. Right? Yes, we might have heard it, but if they don't know that we listened, it's not going to have the, the beneficial impact. And so a lot of the strategies and approaches to, to listening is really not just having listened, but having shown to other people that you listened, right? Uh, people talk a lot about something called emotion labeling, right? Where, um, uh, you know, I use this often uh, with our son where I say, you know, you sound like you're really frustrated. Right? You sound like you're really angry. Now, that doesn't mean that it's okay to be angry, but it means that I've heard that you're feeling this way. Right? I've, it's, and not I'm ignoring this thing and it's jumping right to the solution, right? but acknowledging that I've heard what you said. Um, and even if it's not something I like, I still, I still heard it. Right, and I talked to some hostage negotiators uh, as part of uh, this book, and you know they talk about using this strategy a lot, where it's really kind of showing that you understood. Hey, this is why uh, that person's holed up in there with two hostages. This is why this person wants to commit suicide. This is why this person wants to do this bad thing. I may not agree, 
with the reasons why they're doing it. I may not want to let them do those things that they want to do, but at least acknowledging that I've heard what they said is going to make them feel listened to, which is going to make them much more likely to, to come around, right? This happens often in disagreements with spouses and friends, right? Someone says something and someone says, no, no, this is what I want. And the first person says, you didn't hear me. And so I think part of that is just literally saying, hey, not just saying I've heard you, but showing I've heard you. Let me repeat back to you what you said or label your emotions so it's clear that I not only attended and understood, but you know that I understood. And the fact that you know that is going to make you trust me at least a little more. And we're testing those assumptions because sometimes you might mislabel the emotion and they might not be feeling that at all. And of course, if you're trying to persuade someone and you're not even putting them in the right bucket, you're yep. going to have a very difficult oh, that's, that's such a good point, right? It's like a doctor. If you misunderstand, if you misdiagnose the problem, you're going to bring out the wrong tool for the solution. And so I think the powerful thing about some of these approaches, emotion labeling, you know, uh, talking back, saying what you heard in a nice positive way, both shows that you paid attention, but also, as you said, tests that assumption because that assumption is wrong, or you didn't understand it all the way, they'll correct you, but now you have a good sense of where they are, and you may not agree with them, but at least you know what problem you're trying to solve. The other point that I think is difficult for people to grasp is for so long, certainly in certain cultures, we've all been speaking the same language. We've been having the same information. We've been schooled the same. We're speaking on a level that all of us completely understand. With the information age has opened up, is many different communities, many different cultures, many different, and this is not only cultures for ethnicities and geographical areas. We're talking about cultures and communities such as the gamer community and this community. And all of these different communities have their own language. They have their own definition for the words. We're now seeing where Active listening has become something that we need to develop at such a level to be able to have real conversations that in the past we had taken for granted. Yeah, I, th I think you're very right. I mean, part of it is we assume we all have the same reality, Good. whereas in, in some cases, we, we don't, right? There no. are different pieces of information. There are different things going on. There are different concerns that people have. And those things matter. Then the more we at least call them out, again, we may not agree with them, but the more we say, okay, well, these are the assumptions that you're building on. People, uh, startup founders often, often talk about this, right? Where they say, you know, look, um, when I have a disagreement with another founder in my organization, you know, two founders within a, a company and they're trying to figure out what to do, we start by making sure we're relying on the same facts. Right, because yeah. we can we can get to a different conclusion from the same facts, but the first place to start is well, are we even agreeing on what the facts are? Because part of where the disagreement might be is, hey, we're not looking at the same information, and actually, when I have access to the information that you have access to, I make the same decision you do. And so it's not that we disagree; it's once you give me that information, I realize where you're coming from. Now, there may be other cases where even once I have the same facts, I disagree, but at least giving access to the same information makes sure that we're more likely to get on the same page. And the pattern that arose in the book for me around the hostage negotiation is just the use of team speak and understanding that in a lot of times that we're trying to persuade someone, it can feel adversarial, especially if we're not choosing the right words and understanding that if you want to change someone's mind, they have to feel like you are on their side. You can't be setting up this, well, you need to do this, you need to do that. But instead, hey, let's work on this together. We're going to solve this problem, even though you don't want them to jump off the bridge or you don't want them to shoot the hostage. 
Yeah. I mean, even think about the way we use pronouns. And so I'm, I'm doing a bunch of work at the moment with a colleague named Grant Packard, who's sort of an expert on language, and he has a, a, a bit of work on pronouns. But, you know, let's say we're having a bad connection on this call, right? There are different ways to use language to talk about that. I can say, hey, you need to speak louder. What does that suggest? It suggests it's your fault, right? I can suggest we have a bad connection. Now it's not your fault. Together, we have a bad connection. I can say, I can't hear you. That's taking responsibility, saying, you know, maybe you're speaking loudly, maybe you're not, but part of this may be me. I can't hear you. And just by using different pronouns to describe what's happening, right? We have a bad connection. I can't hear you. You're in there, but, you know, I can't hear you is different than you need to speak louder to me. While the same quote unquote information may be there, the assigning of blame, the question of who's in control, who has responsibility, and all those things is different. And so I think in the past few years, doing some of this research, I've become much more attuned to very subtle differences in language, right? Where often people disagree because one person feels like the other person is assigning blame. They may not even be assigning that blame, but the language they're using assigns, assigns that blame. And so whether it's team speak, you know, saying, hey, we're on the same team, let's solve this together. I'm here to help you. You know, whatever it is that shows, hey, maybe we're together rather than separate is going to bring you a little bit more to, to my side. To go along with that, I've certainly have seen and been a part of arguments where you've agreed on the same thing, but because the language is slightly different, people are talking past each other. And once again, we're getting to that place where we've taken for granted in the past that we all came and were educated and had that same language. With the information age, though it has connected all of us, it has put us all in our own worlds in our own language. Yeah, it, it, cer- it certainly has. And I, I think, you know, things may mean different things to different people and we, we got to be careful of that. Right now, especially where we're seeing this in the information age, we all have our supporting evidence right now. Whether you are a conspiracy theorist or whatever side of the aisle you're on, you can find that supporting evidence and that often doubles your resolve <laughs> to not want to change. Do you feel that it's become harder to persuade people with this glut of information now and the accessibility to evidence that furthers your beliefs, even if that evidence is flawed? I agree with you. First of all, I, I do agree. Um, but even backing up for a second, you know, I think you made a really nice point about uh, the way that information and the plethora of information has allowed people to do things, right? So uh, it used to be, you know, if your doctor tells you to do something, you generally do that thing. Now, if the doctor tells you what you want to hear, you go along with that doctor. Uh, but if the doctor doesn't tell you what you want to hear, you go back home and you look at Dr. Google and you look at all the other information until you find a piece that agrees with what you what you wanted to believe. You know, whether you want to call that motivated reasoning, whether you want to call that confirmation bias, we kind of search for information until we find something that, that agrees with us. And the internet has made it much easier to do that. And so I think as a result, as you said, you know, it in some ways, not on every dimension, uh, but particularly on things in which there's more information available has made it harder to, to change people's mind. Because if they want to find a reason why you're wrong and they're right, it's easier to find some reason. Even if that reason isn't necessarily the case, isn't true most of the time, or may not be from the most reputable source. Right? There's kind of this notion that because it's on the internet, it must be true. I'm very interested to see what's going to happen in five or 10 years now of all these sort of questions of, of fake news and disinformation, whether that will change. But I think for the most part, you know, we're sort of we go on the internet, if there's a piece of information, we assume it's from a good source, but it's not always the case. And sometimes we then rely on faulty information. The last piece that I found so remarkable from the book, and I know a lot of people in our audience struggle with this concept of awkward pauses. 
And <laughs> a lot of people in our audience feel that they're awkward in conversations. Yes. And because yeah. of that, they avoid pauses and yeah. they try to barrel through their points, barrel through their argument, and it speeds up the pace of communication. But you point out that pauses are actually really powerful when we're trying to persuade someone. Yeah. So for what I will say, by the way, is I'm terrible at this. So, uh, you know, I, like everybody else, when you get excited, when you get nervous, you tend to talk faster, right? Yeah. Either because you're you know anxious about something or because you're excited about something. We're actually doing some research now on sort of communicating via voice versus written communication. Uh, and what you see is that one reason that written communication has some benefits is you get a chance to think through what you're saying, Whereas with voice communication, you kind of get excited, you start talking, you, you know, you have your train of thought, but it's different in, in some, some important ways. Uh, and so if you, if you look at pauses, you see a, a few interesting things. You know, first, what pauses do is they encourage people to sit a little bit closer, right? So if I speak more slowly, you start to get drawn in to what I'm saying. Now, I did a bad job of that. I did a terrible job of that. But I've watched uh, you know, very persuasive people, whether you talk about President Obama, did this a lot. Uh, there's a great teacher at Wharton. One of my first years, I sort of sat in on his class. He got amazing ratings. I'm sitting there going, is his class that good? Like, are they learning that much? I'm like, why do people love him as a teacher? And what I realized is he did a really good job of speaking slowly. He encouraged people because he spoke slowly to really kind of pull up their chair and lean in a little bit and listen harder. And they're doing more work to pay attention, which makes them more likely to learn something uh, in, in the end. But what pausing also can do in interactions, uh, you know, sales interactions or persuasion interactions, is they can encourage people to agree. And so we're doing some research on this uh, at the moment. But imagine I'm giving you a long explanation or uh, you know, I'm trying to persuade you of something and so I'm sort of laying out some points. Every time I pause, there's a tendency of you, the listener, or me if I'm listening to you, to kind of go, uh-huh, okay, or shake my head, yes. Right? So think about when you, when you call customer service and they're giving you a long explanation. If you sit there for 10 minutes and you don't say anything, it feels a little awkward. So you tend to fill in those pauses by saying, yeah, uh-huh, Okay. And what that does is you're implicitly agreeing with what they're saying, right? Whether you actually agree with it or not, you're implicitly agreeing with what they're saying, which means at the end, when you rate them on how helpful they are or how much uh, their solution was useful, you're more likely to agree because you spent the whole conversation agreeing. And so that in some way what, uh, is one of the things pauses allows people to do. Not only does it allow them to, to draw them in, not only does it allow them to think about what you're saying, if it's complicated, they can think through it, but it also encourages them to go, yeah, uh-huh, which makes them at the end of that conversation, go, I agreed with that person a bunch. I agreed with what AJ said a bunch. He must be right. Uh, it makes it more likely to be persuaded. The pauses have a way of holding your attention. And as you were saying, there's the implicitness. Also, even on the internet, when we're looking for entertainment, there's so many talking heads who are just going to be going, giving off their point of view. And of course, you're going to settle with one that aligns with your worldview where you have that agreement, where you feel, where you feel good. That puts you in a position where you're going to pay attention, where the pauses have that same effect, where the minute I don't agree, I'm just going to tune out. Yeah. And so, you know, a little bit of it is just giving you that opportunity to be present, to be part of it, right? If the person just continuously talking, you never have time to think or, or agree. I also feel in a lot of these situations, especially when we think about people who aren't good salesmen and they're, they're trying to force us to make a decision. If you don't create space for the person to maybe disagree with you, if your assumption is wrong or to, to voice their opinion, they're going to feel forced in a box <laughs> and, and less persuadable. 
uh, I, I deal with this all the time when doing interviews just like this one, right? So I sit here going, hey, how long a story should I tell? Uh, I think stories are good because they draw audience members in. But I also recognize if I'm talking nonstop at you guys, you don't have an opportunity to chime in with your thoughts and enrich the discussion and you know take it in a different direction. And so I think there is always this question of kind of should I pause uh, or not? And I think the answer, at least that I've seen so far, is that we should pause a little bit more than sometimes we think is right. Not terribly like I did before and awkwardly, but you know, give people at least a little bit of a break every so often to think, to agree, as you said, you know, if you disagree, to raise your hand and say, I, I disagree, to chime in there. Give them those opportunities. I know from our experience in videotaping our clients communicating, oftentimes our internal awkwardness meter is off. We tend to judge ourselves more harshly than the other person is feeling or experiencing because they're running through their own thoughts and machinations as they're trying to reason through the argument. So internally, it may feel like a long, awkward pause, but actually in the cadence of a conversation, it's a blip. It's not awkward at all. Yeah. I mean, we as communicators, you know, particularly voice communication like we're doing now with images added to it. You know, while you're talking, I'm spending time processing what you're saying, looking at what you're doing, thinking of what I'm saying next. I don't have a lot of time to notice. I'm worried enough about me to notice, you know, every single thing that you might feel uh, is awkward. And the same is true in most interactions. People are worried a lot about themselves. And so, you know, the easier we can make it for them, uh, the better it's going to go. Now, the big part that we're all experiencing as well right now, working from home, is we're not in the room together. And body language is an important part of communication. And even in this lovely Zoom, I can't see your hands. You know, we're just floating heads. <laughs> what is the impact of body language on persuading someone? And is there a better way to go about this if we're forced to, you know, communicate over video and not be together? Body language certainly matters. Uh, and there's, you know, a lot of research on different aspects of body language that may be important. I think, though, there are other features that matter, too. Uh, you know, there's what we say, the content. There's how we say it, the paralinguistic cues, things like pausing, things like speech rate, things like tone. We can use all of these tools uh, as vehicles for persuasion. And so while it would be ideal for all of these avenues to be available, even when one, like body language, is shut off, we can use some of these other channels uh, to, to do it. We may not be as effective in those channels, but the more we learn about those channels and what helps across those channels, the more effective we can be. You know, I'll go back to some of the written and voice work we're, we're doing. Um, you know, we're doing some research right now that suggests that when people communicate via voice, they use more emotion in what they're, they're talking about, right? Because written tends to be a little bit more deliberative, I'm going to think about what I'm going to say before I put it out there. I'm in a mindset that makes me a little bit more cognitive, which is good in some ways. But if I'm writing a restaurant review, I may use less emotional language, which may actually be less persuasive on you, the listener, not due to my intent, but due to the channel that I chose to, to speak through. And so I may, if I'm trying to be persuasive, I may want to use voice um, because it allows me to, to take advantage of some things I can't do just through written. I love that. And the book was fantastic. The Catalyst please check it out. And what is your, your next project? Contagious, Catalyst? I feel like you got another book with a C coming out here soon. Uh, you know, I am, uh, uh, the Catalyst just came out. Uh, I'm going to sit on this one for, for a little while, doing a, a lot of speaking and consulting around it. Uh, you know, I will say I'm doing a lot of research uh, on natural language processing, sort of pulling behavioral insight from textual data. So everything like, you know, there's a customer service phone call, what are the words that agent uses that makes you, the customer, more satisfied? 
or reading online content? What are the ways of writing that lead to longer reads? Sort of parsing uh, behavioral insight from textual data. So that's a lot of the stuff I'm working on, but we've got a, a number of years before that's that's ready for another book. Uh, we'll uh, so we'll have you back. That. Yeah, that is fantastic. <laughs> Thank you. Thank you so much for joining us, Jonah. No problem. Pleasure. Thanks so much for having us. All right. This week's shout out goes to none other than a bootcamp alumni, Tulio. Now, Tulio emailed me and Johnny, and it's been three years since his bootcamp. Social distancing has given him the time to reflect about his past and even review those bootcamp notes. Here's what Tulio said. I didn't look at those notes in quite a long time, and I was happy to find that the list of fears I made back then does not apply anymore. I shattered all of those fears, and now I live the life I wanted to live. Above all, I found the woman of my life and could not be happier about that. Second, my business has been successful. We have clients all around the world, and it looks like this May is going to be our best month ever. Quite remarkable considering the current economic situation. This business is very important to me because it aligns with my values and my beliefs, and it gives me great satisfaction every day. So I just wanted to reach out and say thank you. Your fantastic program helped me shatter my limiting beliefs, gain confidence, and tackle life head on. Now, I have to say, Johnny and I get emails like this all the time from alumni of our boot camps, and we love when they go back and review their notes, especially those who joined us years ago. And I have to say, there's nothing more amazing than tackling those fears understanding your limiting beliefs and aligning your life with your core values to reach the success that Tulio reached in his love life, in his business life, and overall happiness. Well, it's quite difficult to figure out what are the exact reasons that you are being held back from the progression that you want in life. But that is specifically what we have designed our programs for so you can meet them and beat them. Now, if you're ready to be our next success story, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash apply. As John and I said to start the show, we only have a few seats remaining. We open them up for next year, understanding that a lot of us can't travel right now and getting out to LA may not be possible this year. So if you're interested in becoming another success story at The Art of Charm, head on over to theartofcharm.com slash apply and grab your seat. Now, we're always excited to hear from all of you. You can send us your thoughts by going to theartofcharm.com slash questions. You can also email us questions at theartofcharm.com or you can find us on social media at The Art of Charm on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. Also, could you do us and the entire Art of Charm team a big favor? Could you head on over to iTunes and rate and review this podcast? It would really mean the world to us. If you got value out of the show, share it with your friends, share it with your family. Let them get as much out of it as you are. Now, if you're new to the show and you want to learn more about what we teach here at The Art of Charm, listen to our toolbox episodes at theartofcharm.com slash toolbox. That's where you're going to get the fundamentals of networking, persuasion, and influence such as body language, eye contact, vocal tonality, including some episodes on building and maintaining relationships. If you're also interested in more learning and more stuff with The Art of Charm, you can join me every weekday morning on our social, Periscope, Instagram, and YouTube. I'll be there and we have quite the fun. That's right. 8.30 a.m. Pacific time every single weekday morning. Coffee with Johnny on all of our social platforms. The Art of Charm podcast is produced by Michael Harold and Eric Montgomery. 
I'm AJ. And I'm Johnny. And we'll see you next week. 